The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gayed, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Artem Milinchuk, founder and CEO of Farm Together. I am going to have this as an edited YouTube video probably in a week or two, so stay tuned for that. This conversation is going to be interesting because this is a different type of investment to consider. How do you think about putting money to work in farming, in, in owning or at least a portion of some of these farms, which Artem is going to get into? So Artem, you and I spoke... I don't know, I want to say three, four, five months ago or so, and a hell of a lot has changed since we last did a space together. A lot of concerns around food prices, a lot of concerns around what the hell to do as far as investing, given that seemingly everything except commodities are correlating the same way with the equity drawdown. First, I want you to just introduce yourself to the audience as far as your background, how'd you get involved in investing in farmland, and how does Farm Together work? Yeah, thank you, Michael. And, you know, I'm glad we're doing it now because... There's the, the time right now is exactly the way I started Farm Together a few years ago. So I'll give a little bit of background. Before starting Farm Together in 2018, my career was in investing in finance. I spent about 10 years and a lot of that time was spent up in Canada, investing on behalf, on behalf of a pension fund, Ontario Teachers, investing on behalf of a private equity group focused on natural resources called Sprott and on behalf of a family office. And so I have a lot of breadth understanding how different types of investors look at asset classes and quite a bit of my industry experience during those years was around agriculture around commodities natural what we call now natural assets back then kind of more real assets or energy and food and so this starting farm together was really i think a culmination of taking that skill set to open up what i think is a, a an amazing asset class farmland to retail investors, to institutional investors as well, through technology, as well as bringing creative, transformative, scalable capital to farmers in what is a very fragmented, opaque market that is still very much, I think, underdeveloped. Okay, so a couple of areas to go here. So let's first talk about the idea that farmland is its own asset, because I think most people maybe on the surface would say maybe it's no different than real estate. It should be lumped into that type of a asset allocation decision. How does farmland maybe differ from traditional ways that you think people look at real estate, real assets in general? Yeah, absolutely. So farmland is absolutely its own beast. And it does kind of, if you want to use some shorthands on how to think about it, 
I would say it sits in between real estate, a little bit of bonds, a little bit like timber, some gold components, but yeah, it's its own beast. Just to give you guys a sense of how farmland has performed, and I'll give you the numbers for the last 30 years or so, but the total return for farmland, and specifically the NCRI farmland index, has been about 10 plus percent. And this is returns composed of both price appreciation of land as well as the income you receive from either renting out land or direct operation of land. And then the volatilities, which is one of the measures of risk one can use in that period has been about six and a half, seven percent. And so when we compare it to other asset classes, it actually has performed really well in the same period of real estate. I'm looking at 1992 to 2020, although we do have you know, 2021 numbers coming soon is the real estate has been like eight, nine percent equity has been eight percent and with much higher volatility. So farmland falls in that generally like a low volatility type return. And I would not expect that type of return, you know, 10, 11 percent to continue as an asset class in the future. I think it will come down, but it's still, I think, very attractive risk adjusted returns. Okay. Now I'm going to assume that the let's call it turnover, sort of the, the the frequency with which you get an updated price in farmland is going to be probably less than for other traditional real estate type of investments, right? That it's probably more of a longer held type of asset, real asset than a home that might flip any number of, after any number of years. Um, I say that because I, I, I'm, and again, I'm just trying to provide some context for the audience. I, I don't know, it's part of the low volatility function of just the nature of the asset class? Or again, is it a factor? Is it because the prices are not updated as frequently? I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that's kind of an important distinction. Got it. Yeah. So I think if you look at two public REITs that are out there that do have farmland, so Gladstone and Farmland Partners, yeah, you'll see their volatility to be, I think, higher than the underlying asset class because they're publicly traded stock that has exposure to a lot of other factors happening in, in the markets. But when we look at the volatility of the underlying asset, no, this information is updated quarterly. Now, yes, uh, you know there is quarterly updates on this index are done on a desktop basis and an annual through independent appraisal. But just in general, you know, farmland, yeah, it um, it doesn't change in price as quickly as other asset classes, and I think that's because you. When I think about volatility, right, and I think about you know risk as well, if I can use just a little bit. I think volatility risk is another way to say uncertainty. And with farmland, you have a lot of certainty of the kind of the, the end markets, right? Like food, everyone's going to eat, they're going to continue eating. If you're talking about tech stocks or crypto, one day everything, everyone thinks, I don't know, the NFTs are all the rage. The next day, no one thinks there was anything. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. In farmland, like, you know people will need to eat and you have a you know, right now, of course, we have definitely more volatility in a good way in farmland because prices have gone up quite a bit. And that's because we're going through a very historic uncertainty around like what our long-term price is going to be for commodities for any asset class. But in general, you're looking at long-term prices for crops. So, for example, the CBO, so U.S. government put out a report, I think, yesterday showing that, look, long-term prices for corn are still expected to be in that same $4 range. And so when you price in farmland, which is ultimately, you know, a long-duration asset, a long-term investment, yeah, short-term prices matter, but you're looking at, like, has there been a fundamental change in, like, the long-term expectation for crop prices? And those don't change as radically. So I know it's a mouthful of an answer, but happy to double-click on that. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to to frame it. Now, one of the... um 
one of the one-liners you often hear when it comes to real estate and property is that you can't make more of it, but you can repurpose it. Talk about the ability for developers or owners to expand the number of farms in the U.S. Because I think that's an, a kind of a unique aspect because obviously there's weather aspects in terms of the, where you are in terms of longitude, latitude and all that stuff. But talk mm-hmm. about that idea of how hard is it or easy is it to repurpose land to produce more farms, to create more farms? Yeah, great question. So actually, when we look at latest U.S. census for farmland and that covers the 2017 year and we compare it to 2012 year, we lost something like 14 million acres of farmland. So farmland in general is disappearing. And when you create more farmland, typically in the emerging markets, including forests, you're creating a lot of damage to the environment. Hold, hold um, on, before, before you go on that, let's go with that for a second. So what's the driver? Why is that disappearing? Why is the farmland disappearing? Yeah, it's a mix of urbanization, aging of farmers, average age of farmers 60. And so as they retire, kids don't want to farm. It's climate change. Yeah, it's th- those are the, the main drivers, the main trends. And it's, yeah, it's been going on for a while now. And I would assume, and just relating it a little bit to food prices, that that probably means average yields are dropping in terms of crop, right? So yes, there are efficiencies, but if by definition you have less land to grow things on, there should be less things that are actually grown to be sold to be available in the grocery. So, Michael, can you repeat that, please? Cut out a little bit for me. No, no, sorry. I'm saying, it's saying the fact that you're saying farmland has been disappearing, I assume, has an impact on crop yields, which kind of makes sense because you have less farms to actually grow things on. So, how does that trend? How does that trend play out in terms of prices at the grocery, independent of what's gone on with Ukraine and Russia? Does that basically just mean that you have this sort of constant, maybe permanently higher, you can argue, type of trend higher in food prices because you just have less supply? Or are there efficiencies that maybe counter some of the farmland disappearing? Talk through that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the good news is that you do have efficiencies, kind of increase in yield. I think since 1947, we've observed about a one plus percent increase in yields, and that kind of helps with food prices. But yes, overall, you have farmland is continuously decreasing and so it's putting upward pressures on food prices. Michael, I can't tell you exactly what that ratio is, but just logically the supply-demand equation is challenging. You also have demand for uh, more organic produce, which typically yields less per acre. You have demand for regenerative agriculture, which in the shorter term at least yields less per acre. And regenerative is more sustainable agriculture. So overall, it's definitely upward pressures on food prices. Okay, now you mentioned that this is a very fragmented space, which makes sense, although <laughs> one of my most popular tweets was about uh, was me sarcastically saying, I guess now we know why Bill Gates has been buying up all these farms. It seems like people were engaging with that because they were under the impression that you're going to end up having some serious consolidation by just a few buyers owning a whole bunch of farmland. Talk about when you say fragmented, what does that mean? How fragmented has that been? Has it been less fragmented over time? What does the lay of the land look like there? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at farmland in the United States, there's about 900 million acres. So there's a lot of farmland. By our estimates, 70% of land is in farms less than $10 million in value or less than a few hundred acres in size. 70%, seven zero. So it's very fragmented, very spread out. And that's just by the very nature. You know, people came into possession of land. There was typically no land grants. There's not any like big corporations that own a lot of land. Even Bill Gates owns north of 200,000 acres, but it's a rounding error in the total amount of, 
line that the US has. So that's the magnitude. That's really the magnitude of these things. And the the information about that land, who owns a title, there's a lot of difficulty in also accessing that information. Ah, okay. So that's another part of it, which is it's not just that it's a fragmented asset class. It's also that the information itself is fragmented. So let's talk about some of the nuances when it comes to a farm in one part of the country versus another part of the country, where is there often variability that might impact the pricing if somebody wanted to actually buy a farm? So if you wanted to buy a farm, you typically right now, you could go through a broker or you could go to an option, but it's not like you know, real estate brokers uh, buying a single family house. It's when you have a lot of tools, you can go to Zillow to check the value of the house. There's just a lot of information. The, so you have to work through brokers. There's a, a number of different farmland listing websites that are not really consolidated information. There is also not presented in the easy to digest or standardized way. You can get a brochure that will have two, three pages speaking in a very technical lingo about the farm. Even your broker will have to go and try to find information on your behalf. And you might not even, sometimes you get wrong information. The seller might not know, might be confused. So it's just, yeah, it's a messy space right now. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, no, that 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 makes sense. Okay, so I, I want to get a little bit Artem into the the weeds, maybe pun intended, around how you guys identify opportunities and how is it that investors access the space? Because if, if everything, I've, as I understand it, with farm together is around to some degree democratizing the ability for somebody to own a portion or kind of be among other investors owning a portion of land as opposed to the outright full thing. So talk about that. How you go about that? So, Michael, maybe it's a little bit on my end. I'll try to find a better spot. But can you repeat that question? Yeah, sorry. I don't know if it's um, – I think I'm okay on my end. But let me let me try no, one. It's, it's, on, it's on my end, yeah. Okay, okay. So what I'm asking is you know, talk about how you – in terms of the investment selection process, how do you identify farms that are worth taking a position in? And as I understand it with Farm Together, you guys are basically democratizing this so that you don't have to have millions of dollars to get access to – investment returns and farms, you're aggregated with other Mm -hmm. investors at smaller amounts. So talk through those two dynamics, because I think this is where this gets to be an interesting conversation, because it's not like you can go out and buy an ETF that tracks farms, but but maybe through what you're doing, there's some potential access. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. That's two very big questions. One is how do we find farms? One, how do we syndicate capital? So I'll answer concisely, and then we can expand. The way we source farms is that we have built out a lot of relationships in the industry, as well as we look to use. It's not quite there yet, but we have an internal tool called Terra, where in the future, Terra will be used to help us scalably source and underwrite and manage farms. And all that 
all those challenges I described around getting information, analyzing the forms, analyzing also the title, when we use that properly, creating and preparing the debt documents. So all of that takes a lot of time. And so without tech, we look to take down the time significantly, which means that we as a business can go after small and smaller farms, although we want to stay in the one to $20 million range, which for most funds are just not economical to invest in. So we're able to get those economies of scale and efficiencies to source farms and find the diamonds in the rough and like the good farms and do a lot of them as well in the future. So that's kind of how we go about at high level. And then on the demand side, on the capital market side, when we identify a farm, we will typically go into escrow and then put it on a platform for investors to invest in it. And we, yeah, we collect capital from accredited investors at the moment online. It's very easy to do for investors to just kind of through the website in a few minutes, you can own a piece of a farm. And probably a question people have, what if I want multiple farms? So yeah, absolutely. We aim to provide people good transparency to like what's coming to the platform, what are the crops we typically invest in. And so people can you know, wait for that and pull out do to get a diversified portfolio of different crops and geographies. Or they can just invest one time into our fund, which is aiming to achieve that diversification over a period and then just be one and done. So there's different channels through which you as an investor can invest with us. And the third one that I should mention as well, if you have a lot of capital and you want to own a farm in your own name, but you want it to be professionally managed, professionally sourced, right? Because with a broker, they just compensated on a transaction fee or they're compensated on asset management fees. We can do that as well. We're essentially will buy a farm and operate it for you. How should investors think about valuation when it comes to farming, right? You can come up with some kind of regression around real estate and the various variables that impact it. I assume liquidity and interest rates obviously is one of them, but how do you how should investors think about whether it's a good time or not a good time if the space and again recognizing it's fragmented if the overall asset class despite local differences is mm-hmm. too pricey versus not too pricey yeah absolutely so the way we show this is through our target expected IRRs or target expected returns for the farm over the whole period we take into account recent movements in land prices we take into account longer term historical land prices of course aim to get a sense of where are we in the cycle but that's why our hold periods are typically 10 to 11 years because farmland is a long-term investment and then we just show you what we think the expected IRRs are given our assumption about land prices crop prices and what you have seen michael what you may have seen on the website this year versus last year our returns for deals have come down a little bit because we feel that land prices have increased substantially in 2021. And so some of that longer term price appreciation has been pulled forward to 2021. So we will say, look, the deal that before would be expected 10, 11% net IRR now looks like an 8, 9% net IRR, 7%. And again, depending on which year it is, some expectation will be higher, some will be lower. I think our investors, though, they're also looking for other things besides just returns, things like inflation protection, diversification, which are maybe two certain crops that they like personally. So there's more than just a single property expected returns. And I'm curious also, how do you um, how do you deploy cash when there may not be enough opportunity? So if we go going back to this idea that it's fragmented and that um, 
It's a relatively small space. It's not like you can necessarily track one for one every single new dollar that comes in. You can immediately deploy it somewhere else because you're trying to opportunistically find properties and the properties may not be coming up for sale that often. So talk about how you manage that fund flow from how you put that money to work. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a good sense now because we've done a lot of deals. The demand that investors have for different crops, different geography, and different returns. And so when we look for those opportunities, we will pass on opportunities that we have found not to have not to be resonating with our investors. And it is a bit of an adjustment. Sentiment changes, of course, but that's not how we go about it. And yeah, there might be periods where there's fewer opportunities, more opportunities. We will always stay true to our underwriting to being as objective as we can about what we expect about the future and express it in our models and our presentation materials and let the investors decide. How important is the federal side to access to farmland. So this is an area I just don't know much about. Is it one of those things where there there are incentives, not just to farmers, but to investors in farmland, or are there things that have to be considered on the municipal front? Talk about a little bit how the sort of the public side interacts with farmland as an asset class. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot there. I would probably start high level in that not just US, but almost every country has a goal as a government, as a country, as a nation to have some level of food security. And so there's always going to be a level of protection of one's agricultural industry. And U.S. is no different. Where the United States goes further is in a few areas. So one is in what we call row crops or crops like corn, soybeans, so basically things that you plant in rows and they call the annual crops as well. So you plant them every year versus permanent crops, which would be like almond trees. So in raw crops and corn, soybean, those staple core crops, there are subsidies from the government, insurance. There's the ethanol mandate, which recently I think has been expanded. So that, And then there's a lot of just support from U.S. being a global trading giant to the ag industry. So agriculture is one of the largest exporters in the United States. So that, that plays a big role. On the permanent crop side, so this is your tree fruits, your tree nuts, there's way less support from the government. And that's primarily where we are as a business, although we do have quite a bit of row crops as well. There's little little support there. There's a little bit around insurance, but generally, you know, what you have in corn and soybean, there's way less in kind of those groups. And then you have, of course, regulations at state level. You have water politics in places like California and others where there's competition for water between different uses. So yeah, there's quite a bit of government life, if you will, going on when you're dealing with farmland. But is there, again, this is me asking naively, but is there, maybe competition is not quite the right word, but you mentioned the nationalization of resources, right? So is there any concern or maybe competition where governments themselves start taking an ownership stake directly? in? in Oh, I see. Uh, No, we have not seen that. And I don't think we'll see that in the United States now. Ah, okay, and yeah, I said, and I know, that, I know that's your primary focus, but presumably that's not uncommon overseas. I think, in for example, you're know, talking about Ukraine before this war started, they were looking to pass laws that would allow people to own farmland because it's all, I believe, government right now. You can only lease it. Russia, another big farm producer, I think there's more of private ownership, but I'm not versed in kind of farmland laws outside the United States to speak intelligently to it. Yeah, no, it's just an interesting dynamic. And everybody, it's here. Make sure you follow uh, Artem uh, Milanchuk and 
farm together. I don't I'm not getting paid to do this space. I just think it's an interesting area to consider because everyone's hungry for something that's different in a year where everything is upside down. And I think that's important to at least keep an open mind with different different types of asset classes. So Artem, the with the investors that are coming to you to put money to work in farms, what's been a typical type of an allocation? Meaning is it considered a fringe alternative satellite type of Asset class, is it considered more core, maybe has some bond-like volatility characteristics? Talk about how it fits into an overall portfolio. Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. And look, I'd love to one day farmland to be just as core of a portfolio stocks and bonds, but right now it is indeed a smaller portion. What we find is I think that people think about as maybe 3 to 5% of their portfolio, although some people are big fans and they put more. But right now, yeah, it's... I think mentally in people's heads, it takes the overall basket of alternative investments together with real estate, maybe a little bit of crypto, some other things. The research has shown that TIA crafted a few years ago is that if you land, if you add land to almost any portfolio that is stocks and bonds, it does improve the sharp ratio and the return profile, the efficient you know, portfolio curve of that traditional stocks and bonds portfolio. I hope and believe that in the future, people will, everyone will have a little bit of farmland in their portfolio again. It has such unique qualities that almost no other asset class has that it definitely is a, a valuable addition. I mean, again, the risk return profile, how uncorrelated it is to other asset classes, strong inflation protection characteristics, performance in periods of recession, G capabilities of this asset class. So I definitely, I should want to scratch, I don't hope, I know for a fact, it's going to have massive inflow of capital. And we're already seeing that from where we sit, from institutional mandates, from actually my friends up back in Canada, pension funds, almost all Canadian pension funds, a lot of them to my knowledge are adding farmland to their portfolios. It reminds me a little bit of infrastructure back in, the odds, the 2006-8, when I believe around 50 billion total was allocated to infrastructure from an institutional perspective. And today it's close to six, 700 billion. So there's a lot of capital flowing into the space. And then yeah. it's just, it's so vital to our survival, to our civilization, that it is surprising to me that it doesn't have as prominent a place in the portfolio as real estate these days. Yeah, and I hate to say, but you'd probably be able to attest this to this more than anybody else. But, you know, the reality is it doesn't really sound that sexy. It's like people want something that... Oh, no, up. it is a good, boring, healthy, like this is the salad of your investment diet. <laughs> but I think boring right now, if you look at the markets, is what a lot of people want. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, and it's, it's you know, the, the slow and steady, you can argue, wins the race. You tend to not have a very big audience for slow and steady with any asset class because people always want the the momentum, high-flying type of asset class. And that also even applies, I'd argue, to, to real estate in yeah. general. Yeah, Michael, you have a much bigger audience than we have at the moment. I'm sure you you kind of have exposure to all kinds of investor sentiments. Yeah, we're just heads down with one asset class. But I will say that our investors tend to skew a little older investors that have been through a few cycles. And they they love having the opportunity to invest in farmland and not be up every day watching the markets and being stressed out. I think as you go through those cycles, you understand that your life is short and there's too many gray hairs and following the trends all the time. So yeah, if you can catch all the trends, you should be very well off. But I think for 99.9% of people, ultimately, you know what my philosophy is, just have a good portfolio for meets your goals over a long-term period and 
Of course, you should have stocks and bonds and everything else. And we're just saying that farmland is a good addition there. All right. So talk about liquidity for a moment, right? Because it's very well known, for example, when it comes to investing in timber, that uh, it's considered one of the illiquid uh, parts of the real estate uh, space because – uh, and that results in what they call an illiquidity premium. It's part of the endowment model, right? Is this idea that when you have a long enough time frame, you can buy into these areas which don't have that much liquidity, and that gets you some excess return. And timber is often one of those areas that is often referenced for that. How, do, how does liquidity work with the types of investors that go to you, and how do you manage needs for liquidity? Or I, I assume it's based on some kind of set schedule, but but talk about that. But yeah, absolutely. Look, right now our deals are typically ten year hold. And while we are working longer term on having secondary liquidity options right now, we don't have any. So we encourage people to think about this long term. Now, the question, of course, is how do you define long term? Because I always make that point that people's long term now is often just a month or two, which is mind numbing to me. But how do you how do you frame long term investing when it comes to investing in farmland? Yeah, for us, it's at a minimum needs to be like seven years. And really, most of our deals are 10 to 11 years. I'm sure that sounds like a lifetime for some of the uh, some of the audience, but the reality is that's what investing is supposed to be. You're supposed to have that kind of a time horizon, and if the factors impacting supply and demand continue, as it seems like they, they probably will, at least time's on your side there, especially with something that's not a highly volatile asset. Okay, so let's go back a little bit to the fragmentation, and one of the things that you often hear about is how some of these institutions like uh, – BlackRock or whatever other ones are buying up a whole bunch of homes, buying up in some cases whole neighborhoods. Have you seen a pickup in institutional demand around farmland by some of these very big players, or is it still largely not that interesting? So it's still niche. We have talked to a lot of those large groups. They find it very compelling, very interesting. The challenge that they all face, and this is what we're trying to solve with our technology, is for someone like BlackRock, and they need a lot to move the needle for them. So they don't need even a billion. They, if they're going to offer farmland, they need to be able to offer 10 billion, right? 50 billion maybe. And while there's three plus trillion of farm in the United States, the way to get that and be able to invest in that is really hard without tech and like in the current infrastructure. So they're all interested. I think once we get to sufficient scale as far together and have those capabilities, we will partner with them to be able to offer it through their channels. But right now, the the new demand we're seeing is more so from small and nimbler endowments, like university endowments, forward-looking family offices that have read probably your post on Bill Gates and thought, hey, I should be, if that guy's doing it, he must know something. So it's those smaller type of investors and of course the retail investors. That's where most of our demand has come from today, which I personally find really Exciting because typically you have the hedge funds, the larger players, they have all the capabilities, all the tools to find those as yet unearthed investment opportunities and able to move first in them. But with farmland, because of how fragmented it is, I find it really great that we can give our investors that first mover advantage before inevitably like the large capital comes in. And I think you know, farmland will reprice actually fundamentally from the big capital markets global perspective to something that will be re- reflective of the value of that asset class to the institutional portfolios. And there's a lot of value there. Yeah, that's where the state of the world is right now. Yeah, no, that, that's an interesting point. Okay, so I'm going to throw out a hypothetical thought experiment because I'm with you, all right? All the secular trends are there for farmland prices to keep going up and to the right in a 
probably a fairly quote unquote steady type of way. But how do how do other technological advances when it comes to food, how might that impact that trajectory? So, for example, you talk about seven years being long term. I can clearly envision a scenario where in, in seven years, meat is being cloned. It's already being cloned or whatever wheat crops, but the, the science and technology gets to the point where you almost don't need a farm. You can mass produce it literally in, in a building. Talk about, and again, this is me just being hypothetical, but how do you think about the progress of technological cloning, a better way of saying it, in when it comes to crops and how that maybe interacts with demand for farming? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great question. And Michael, when I was younger, although I'm not that old now, I was very optimistic on the speed of technological progress and the speed of spreading that technological progress into the world, right? Not just in, in invention, but implementation. But what I have seen time and time again, and I'll talk about you know, your question in a minute, but things take much longer than we expect. And I'm sure you and some of your listeners heard this saying that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So the even if I look at Tesla, right, electric cars, Tesla been around for 17 years or something like that. Majority of cars are still you know, gasoline cars and will be for a very long time, until 2050 or more. So it's the same with, with food production, farming. So yes, there is cloning of meat. Yes, there is vertical farming. But in general, I think that it might have some impact around the edges, but nothing close to impact even like one basis point, maybe one basis point, the trajectory of farmland prices. And that's because we're talking about a global system of production that has been, it's a commodity business, right? So it's been ruthlessly efficient in costs, in scale, in how we go about getting our food and how we distribute it, that it's hard to, you know, make it done because it all comes down to a few things. I mean, if you think about food production and vertical growing, at the end of the day, it comes to things like, what's your footprint? So yes, vertical growing helps there. How do you get your energy? And right now we have energy inflation, whereas in farmland, well, the sun comes for free to the crops. How do you get water? Guess what? Like I mean, a lot of crops are irrigated from rain or from the water coming just naturally versus having to bite it. Also, how do you deal, you know, in vertical growing? It's a closed ecosystem. How do you deal with diseases? In some ways, it's easier. In some ways, it's harder. And then like the scale, when you look at growing corn, vertically, it's never going to work because you have this huge field when you go to Iowa. And they stretch for miles and they're very flat and you just you get in your truck and go. And that's very efficient. So there will be some impact on like leafy greens, on herbs, on high value produce, like organic lettuce, you near New York or something, yes. But it just we're pushing against like fundamentals of physics and coming to issues like entropy and efficiency of trans translating energy into different forms of energy. And it's just really hard for like an innovation to come that will radically change how we grow food yeah no that's a fair point it's more of just a thought experiment on that end when it comes to institutional versus retail investors in farmland 
are there a different adoption patterns? And I'll maybe add to that question, just provide some additional color there. I'm going to assume most of the sort of early money in farmland comes from farmers that are trying to expand and get additional farms. And retail maybe only now is starting to pay attention to it because they look, they're looking for diversifiers. But talk about that, that way that retail that you deal with institutions, how do they view the asset class differently? Yeah, great question. And look, it's uh, I don't want to stereotype too much because retail, you have very different people. And a lot of those people actually work for institutions. And in institutions, they have, at the end of the day, just like they have retail constituents and they have their own mandates. So it's not as easy of a distinction to make. But I would say in general, the differences between retail institutional investors. So retail, they are much more comfortable investing with us online. They typically will just trust our underwriting to take a look at how we think about things because you know, they don't have time to get into the details of how we value an almond orchard. Like, what do we think about this water district in California and how it's going to impact water availability and price the next 10 years? So they view us as, okay, these guys know what they're doing. I'm going to invest with them. With more institutional investors, we find more scrutiny on our underwriting, on how we think about pricing, all those different things. And then more attention to the which is unique to institutions, more like the, uh, how do we do custody? How do we do regulatory filings? Things like that. And I just don't apply to retail investors. The, the themes are the same. It's the same themes of, you know, I want inflation protection. I want uncorrelated returns. I want express an ESG mandate. So I want to invest in organic. So you know, broadly, like investing in the end of the day, you want to get more money <laughs> than you put in and you want to do it with little risk. So the broad strokes stay the same. So interesting. When I go to your website, you have a stat that says that the NCREIF farmland index hasn't had a negative year in the past three decades. So even in, even in recession, you tend to not see. Oh, Michael, even more so. If you look at two thousand Q4 2007 to Q4 2009, this index was up double digits when everything else, you remember, the financial crisis was down by 20, 30, 40 percent. You know, you know what's funny about that? I'm, I'm kind of laughing a little bit to myself in hearing you say that because I remember very well during the great financial crisis, there were a lot of doomsday preppers that were saying, I've got to get a farm, like grow food because the entire financial system is collapsing. So it makes some sense, right? It's like you're in an end of the world type of situation. You kind of go back yeah, to yeah. this. <laughs> well, uh, if you remember that movie, Big Short, and the listeners event when they're doing like that postscript, they say that Michael Burry, he retired to California and... Uh, Bay Area where I used to live, started investing in water. And my understanding is he was investing actually in, in farms that have a lot of great water rights. And he's probably done really well. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And that kind of dovetails to a second question that I wanted me to ask you, which is that, is, would you consider the farmland more of a, of a diversification play or a momentum play? Because going back to that stat, if you haven't had a single down year, and who knows if past is going to be like the future, but that sounds like a momentum asset class, even though it's a not a super high momentum asset class. I guess if you can clarify a bit for me what you mean by a momentum asset class. Well, meaning like that people want to chase returns as opposed to simply say, because it's going up every single year, as opposed to say, well, I don't mind if it goes down, if other parts of my portfolio go up, because that's what diversification is. Got it. So I'm not sure I can quite answer that question in that lens, but I would say for me, when I was studying this, it was definitely a lot about diversification, inflation, recession, protection, and then, yes, returns. But it's, to me, it's a defensive asset class. It's a little bit maybe like utilities where it just 
marches to the beat of its own drum, right? And even within farming, you have different types of crops will have different trends. So it's something that end of the day is driven by growing population, by improving diets, by increasing productivity that flows to land values, decreasing supply of farmland. And so it's more, I think, to me, I, I think I get what you're saying, Michael. Like, there's definitely, I would say, like this last year and this year, there's a lot of that more momentum where, in my view, I think the land price have grown a little too quickly, <laughs> too much. But the the overall kind of thesis there is it's very clear what drives that long-term value and why we expect it to grow. Of course, you know, you want to get it at the right price at the right time. But generally, you know, it's a little hard to time cycles. And I would say it's, yeah, it's more of a structural kind of secular type of investment thesis versus momentum play. How idiosyncratic are some of the aspects of different farms, meaning it's harder to farm a certain type of crop or grow a certain kind of crop or whatever it would be? How much variability is there in terms of the difficulty of actually using farm across the country to mm-hmm. produce a certain yield? Because because it's not all uniform, right? It's not, aside from the fact that it's different locations, presumably there's different difficulties based on location. So there's different, there's of course major differences between crops, but there's not that many differences in terms of the crops within, sorry, farms within a, a one crop. If you grow in corn or soybeans, right, you just want to have like good drainage. If you're irrigating from the sky, you want to have good yields, which is a function of how much fertilizer you put in and sort of productivity of the land. You want to make sure that you deal with pests and things like that. But it's generally the same core principles. Although you're right, but depending on the crop, there'll be some variability. Like for example, Florida's citrus industry was decimated by the greening disease. And then a lot of that moved to Texas, to California. And so now here in Florida, you really have to watch out for it. Whereas like California and Texas, they're very, very good with managing those risks. So you have some idiosyncrasies like that. But look, at the end of the day, yes, there's certain uniqueness to each farm, to each operator, how the landscape is, what is the local labor situation, what is the topography of your field. But that's what we ultimately just standardize with our tool Terra. But in general, you, you can absolutely compare like a farm in one region to farm in another region. Yeah. Okay, so I'm curious again, and again, everybody make sure you follow Artem. I, I hope this is a an interesting conversation for those looking to think about different types of investments in this difficult environment here. But the uh, what makes for a poor investment? And in this case, I'm not talking about necessary valuation, but certain variables, certain characteristics that make a certain property like a must avoid. Yeah. And and look, I'm glad you qualified it with, you're not talking about financial, because I would say the number one is make sure you buy it at a good price with real estate. But yeah, with farms, look, I think at the end of the day, let's just bring it to the basics. It's really how much stuff did this farm grow? And how much did it cost you to grow this stuff? And how much did you sell it for? So those are the three things you're really working with. And so with that, number one is you want to make sure that your farm is in a good ecosystem. I don't mean it in a ecological way, but actually in a more financial way, meaning that your farm is located in an area where there's a lot of farm. Because one way that the land can lose all its value, this is just no one to farm it. So you don't want to be buying it in the middle of nowhere in the sense of a farm, because for, I'm sure most listeners, farms are in the middle of nowhere, but in the middle of nowhere from a farming sense, when there's few farms, the ecosystem is not developed, there's not enough kind of critical mass to make it interesting. That's, that is important. That's why a lot of our farms are in California, because California is a powerhouse, places like Washington, Oregon, but there's just like a lot of those farms. And so that also, you know, Michael, to your point about liquidity earlier, from a liquidity standpoint of, can we sell this farm? You want to be in a place where, Farms get unsold all the time. There's 10 buyers, 10 renters looking to 
go operate those farms. So that's really important. Then we come to some basic things like, is this good soil? Is, are the trees, we invest a lot in trees, is they rootstock, meaning like they're, you know, the, the, the tree itself is actually put in a different mood. So is the rootstock correct for this type of tree, this type of property? West Coast, of course, California, major theme that I'm sure is on people's minds is water. Does this farm have good water availability, including periods of drought, which will inevitably happen? So you want to make sure that you have a really good sense of the water. And then I think, uh, you know, those are kind of the, honestly, the main points. Okay. And then maybe the, the last question on my end. So, you know, it's, it's argued from the college textbook days that you're not really diversified in the stock market unless you have at least 30 positions. Now, there's a lot of nuances to that because it depends on the sector and sub industries and how much weighting. But I don't know if you've ever done any studies on Sardin, but is there um, a number of farms in a portfolio that make the idiosyncratic aspects of the farm not matter? So what is diversification within farmland? Hey, Michael, another great question. And unfortunately, again, coming back to lack of availability of information, and even the entry farmland index doesn't have, it has maybe 1,000 plus properties, which is still a tiny bit compared to the U.S. farmer market. I don't have a good academic answer to that. But having now been in this business for a few years, looking at it from an intuitive, qualitative perspective, and we, we should do a study once we, we have a bit more resource, we'll do a study, and that's a great question. I would say it's about 10 properties. You could get away with as low as five, but 10 is a good number. Right, presumably in different locations. You've got to diversify yes, the, the location as well. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody, again, that's here, I certainly hope you've found this to be an interesting conversation. I, I think it, it's interesting to, to talk about areas you don't often hear on financial media, right, that are probably boring. And I think what Artem is doing with Farm Together is unique in that he's trying to make it more accessible in a way that you can't otherwise get access to. Any suggestions, Arden, for how to pe- how should people maybe educate themselves more beyond obviously going to your own site? And how should people educate themselves more on, on the space? Yeah, so uh, look, I would definitely check out those two public stocks I mentioned, Gladstone and Farmland Partners. They put out good materials. We invest a ton in education on our website. So there's a lot of articles, YouTube videos, visits from the farm, and you can read about individual deals or schedule calls with our clients and like we're happy to educate you because you're right like most people don't know about this asset class and you know i love that you say it's boring because that's exactly how i want farmland to be viewed it's a boring safe long-term investment so yes and we yeah our client team is happy to educate we do quarterly webinars as well we do talks like this we have a number of white papers as well on farmland like a primer on farmland investing how does farmland behave in periods of inflation and recession a primer on the california market because there's a headline that uh, everyday person read very alarmist about california that couldn't be further from the truth in terms of how we should think about farmland investing in california and yeah i would i know i don't want to be self-promotional but there's a ton of resources on our website on farmland as i always say if you don't sell yourself nobody's gonna do it for you so everyone has at the end of the day uh, talk their own book, and I think it's a there's a book in this case that's worth reading. So again, thank you everybody for joining. Thank you, Artem, for spending the time here. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. 
Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.